you turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles or on your apps. Um, what Kendrick just talked about is such a great tie-in to what we're talking about today. I literally could just say, ditto, let's pray and uh, get out early. But I'm not going to do that um, because we want to dig deeper into what this means, as we do every week. Um, but I love taking time, as we have over the last five weeks, to give you little snippets of information about what we do, whether it's what we do with kids, uh, why we sing the songs that we sing, why we are a gospel-centered church and what that means, et cetera, et cetera. So you understand, there's, we're not just throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks. There's intentionality and purpose behind uh, everything that we do as a church. There's a reason, and we'd love to share that with you if you have questions. And we're going to continue to do this uh, in the coming weeks and months to continually remind us of uh, why we do what we do, and there's a purpose behind it. Um, Examining why we are a gospel-centered church is uh, relevant to today's uh, uh, vision series sermon. We're now in the fifth and last week of this series. As Kendrick mentioned, a series we do every year at this time uh, to remind us and remember who we are as a church and this incredible calling that we received to be this distinct entity in our city, a church of Jesus Christ, unlike any other group or organization that exists uh, this year, we've gone back to our origins, at least our New Testament origins in the book of Acts, where we see Jesus coming, living his perfect, righteous, and holy life, lovingly, sacrificially giving himself for on the cross for sinners, rising from the dead, then spending 40 days teaching his followers about the kingdom of God, Acts 1 tells us. Then he ascends to the right hand of the Father, where one day he will again descend, just as he left uh, appearing again, not as a little baby in the manger when he comes back, but as king of the universe. And before he goes, he tells his closest followers, really his only followers, about 120 people, to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to come to empower them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which is an outline for the entire book of Acts, because you see the gospel moving through those specific regions. And they wait. And the Spirit comes and the church is born. They go out to the streets, Peter proclaiming the good news of Jesus. This man whom you Jews and Romans conspired to kill, he was and is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ that the entire Old Testament pointed to. He is, in fact, the Savior of the world. And it was a message that so resonated with the people who heard this. When they, they heard the message, they saw this demonstration of power and that they were speaking in, in languages that everyone could understand that they were convicted. And they say in verse 37 of Acts 2, they were uh, pierced to the heart. What are we supposed to do about this? And Peter responds, invites them, repent, turn from your sins and be baptized. Publicly identify with this man, Jesus, and his followers. Become a part of this new community that worships Jesus as the Christ. Picking up in verse 41. Acts chapter 2. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, we are amazed at the reality that this work you began thousands of years ago, we share in today. And the love and the desire you had for people then to know you and be saved and come alive in you is the same desire you have for everyone in this room and everyone in this city. And you have put us here to proclaim this message to our city. So help us today understand and take in the truth that you have us that will change us and send us out with this message of the good news of Jesus. Help us to respond in repentance and faith for the glory of Christ alone, we pray. Amen. We have found great value in going back to our origins as a New Testament church to discover some of these qualities about them that made them distinct then and help them remain distinct as they flourished in the Greco-Roman Empire that we can now take and apply to us today to help us to be distinct. And as, we, as we'll see, as we've seen, they were distinct because of certain things they were devoted to and a person they were devoted to. And we hope by God's grace we don't fall into the rut of simply being a church in name only because that's very possible. You can be a church that's just kind of the window dressing of a church where we have a name and we have a bank account and we have a website. We even have social media accounts, although you would hardly ever know it because we don't use them. We have um, paid staff and we have volunteers. We have a tax ID number. We have articles of incorporation with the state. We, we have all these things. We have a place to gather and we have weekly activities and, and, and Sunday activities. We're doing things with kids right now. We, we have all these things that define or could define a church, but you can have all of that and not possess the essential qualities that make a church a church, according to the New Testament. And you can just appear to be a church. And we hope by God's grace we, we never fall into that rut and fall into that trap. And so what are the qualities that should define us? There are a bunch of them, but we're focusing on the four found in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, we know these aren't the only four qualities the early church was devoted to, but this is the consensus of how you would describe them in the very, very early stages in existence as a church. There were more than this, but they were at least this. And so we hope, by God's grace, these qualities flavor us with greater and greater intensity with greater and greater saturation, that this is who we are. To be devoted is to be continual and constant in something. It has your attention. It has your focus. It is so much a part of your life, it begins to define you. Jesse is devoted to Lucy and now JJ. It's part of Jesse's life that will never not be part of his life. And especially this past week, as J.J. came into the world, he's been really devoted. What are you doing here right now? Chandler needs you. It just flavors who he is and who Chandler is, and as it does all of us who are fathers or all of us who have spouses and so forth and so on. To be devoted is, is something that just describes who you are. And these were the practices of the early church. These were not, as we saw last week, the aspirational values. This was actually who they were. 
It wasn't, well, we want to be like this. It was, this is who we are. This is how we're living life. It characterizes us. We want to be a church devoted to seeing God use us to bring about racial reconciliation and racial harmony in our city, in our region. Much like the church was mind-blowing in that it was a collection of Jew and Gentiles that came together as one, it was a, a collection of people that could only in the first century be defined by this presence and reality of Jesus Christ who made them one despite their diversity. So we want to have a mind-blowing diversity and unity that can only be um, attributed to the presence of Christ that, that makes our region sit up and say, man, I don't know how to explain why all those people love each other so much and why all those people call each other brother and sister because they're family. They're so different. And we know it's hard because of the issue of racial segregation and racial inequality that's been in our region and been in the South for a long time. It's hard for us in our country as a nation. But, and, and, and frankly, right now, it's more of an aspirational value than it is something that we are fully experiencing. Now, if we're really devoted to it, it's going to show up in the coming months and years. It's going to show up in how we live life as a church and how we pursue this as individuals and families and, and leaders. We'll see how devoted we are. The gospel, the Spirit of God, made this new community devoted to the apostles' teaching. They continued steadfast in the Scriptures, the ones written, the Old Testament, that all they had at that time, and the ones that were being written as they were writing down the eyewitness evidence of Jesus Christ. When we stand before you each Sunday, and whenever we have a teaching time as a church, the first question on our mind is not, well, what do we want to say to our people? The first question is, what does the Bible say? That's what we want to get across. And it saturates the decisions that we make. It saturates the conversations that we have. It saturates the teaching preparation that all of us go through. And if we ever have a guy who gets up here and it's really more his opinion than it is what the Bible says or his opinion is out of line with Scripture, we want you to come and say, I don't know about that. So that we can go to them and say, let's, let's talk about this. Because we want to declare the teaching of Scripture and not just our good ideas. They were devoted to the prayers, it says. How did all of this begin? Acts 1, 14. It's, it, the, uh, the Acts says they were all continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, Jesus had told them in verses 4 and 5 of Acts 1 to not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Father's promise which he says, you've heard me speak about, for John baptized you with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem, go and wait, because the Father's promise is coming. What's that promise? You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, honestly, they really didn't know what that meant. <laughs> like, okay, what are we supposed to do about that? Well, thankfully, they were obedient and they waited, and they did really the only thing they knew to do, pray. Just wait and pray. They didn't go back and form a committee. They didn't start doing missiological research on Jerusalem. They didn't start scouting out venues because they knew they were going to have 3,000 people added in one day. They didn't do any of that. They just went, they waited, and they prayed. We don't know what you're going to do, Father, but we trust you. And it's something you've promised, and it's going to happen. And so let's wait in dependence 
Let's wait in desperation. Hearts and souls and minds before you, Father, you have to fulfill your promise to us before we can go out and be your people. Do we live and operate as a people who are desperate and dependent on God? And it shows up not just in the words that we say, but it shows up in the prayers that we pray. Are we a people devoted to the prayers out of desperation for God to show up and work in us and through us? Now, don't hear me say or don't see me create this separation between uh, God's work and man's work. You know, the Spirit has to come and do this thing, and uh, we do nothing while we wait on Him. Uh, that there's no organization and structure that is also a part of God's work and the Spirit's work. God gives the gift of leadership. God gives the gift of administration to the church to build structures and organizations that help support the growth that He can only provide through His Spirit. And you see this throughout the book of Acts. The Spirit has to show up and move for there to be life, but they also had to organize themselves, which is also empowered by the Spirit. They're, they're in this upper room waiting and praying. Well, somebody had to find the room. Somebody had to reserve it for them or provide it for them. Somebody had to supply food for 120 people while they waited and prayed. More than likely in that room, somebody's leading scripture readings or leading corporate prayer times, or we're going to split up men with men, women with women, groups of three to five. Who, who knows how they organized it? But that was definitely part of how they waited on the Spirit to show up. And you see this throughout Acts. Uh, the Spirit moves and people work and organize and do work. Deacons are appointed to help feed all the widows in Acts 6. Elders are appointed in every city. Uh, plans and travel plans are put together so that Peter and then Paul can get the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome in 28 chapters. Things have to be done and put in place by the Spirit. The analogy that we've liked over the years is the trellis and the vine. Not original with us. It's been around for a while. A trellis is a structure like a, a latticework or a fence built and put in place to support the organic growth of the vine. The trellis doesn't make the vine grow. The trellis supports the growth of the vine. Without the structure in place, the vine just lays in the dirt and can't grow and be as healthy as it needs to be. But with some structure in place, the vine can flourish. Too much structure, it can choke out the life of the vine. So we don't want to organize and plan everything and try to make the Spirit of God move because we've manipulated Him or planned Him into uh, uh, moving. We want just enough structure to support the growth that the Spirit wants to bring. There has to be a necessary balance. So you want to be a person devoted to prayer. You want to be a family devoted to prayer. That didn't just happen. You don't just fall into that. You, the Spirit has to, to help you make plans and do things in your life so that you can more and more be flavored as a person of prayer. You've got to build structures into your life. It might be a, like an app on your phone. I have one that I use that allows me to set up all these different prayer lists for all these different groups of people I'm praying for. And then every three, three hours, I get a reminder. Have you prayed today? Have you prayed? Have you prayed? And sometimes it's like, oh, I haven't. Let me stop and do that. And sometimes I'm like, swipe, swipe. I got other things to do because I'm still sinful in need of the gospel. But you've got to do these things to, to build structure in your life, to, to, to provide space for the Spirit to move. And ultimately, whether it's the structure, the organization, or just the move of the Spirit, it's all the work of God so that He gets the glory for the grace of God in your life because He is awesome and not because we're awesome with our plans and programs. Last week, we saw that they were devoted to the fellowship, the koinonia. They were literally involved in each other's life, partners in everything, devoted to each other in life as a reflection of God making them a new community, a new family, making them as one. 
Out in California, you have the redwood trees, the redwood forest. Uh, for some of you, think the forest of Indoor. That might help you imagine that. These trees are amazing. When they were first discovered, they've been amazing us ever since, people who get to visit them. They, they can be as wide as 22 feet in diameter. This room is 30 feet. These trees are almost as wide as this room, the largest ones. They can be up to 360 feet tall. That's a 36-story building, which does not exist in Monroe, by the way. This is a six-story building. So imagine six more of these piled up on top of each other. The young ones can be up to 600 years old. So 600 years ago, there was no Martin Luther or Protestant Reformation yet. That's a long time ago. The U.S. is only 242. We're very young as a nation. Some of them are as old as 2,000 years old, which means they were saplings when Christ walked the earth, if you can imagine. And the scientists have studied the redwood trees. They've been uh, uh, amazed because you would think for a tree that big and that old, they would have like a 50-foot taproot or just yards and yards of roots deep into the ground to support that much height and that much weight. But what they discovered is that their root system is actually very shallow for the size of trees that they are. What they discovered is the trees, the individual trees, actually lock their roots and intertwine their roots with the other trees. So a redwood forest is not just a bunch of individual trees happen to grow together. It's really more like one big organism, all supporting each other as they grow really big and really strong, which is a picture from natural revelation of the type of koinonia and fellowship that we should have as a church of Jesus Christ, that we are completely interlocked and completely dependent on one another for growth. We're still individuals. We're still individual families, but we are locked in together, dependent on each other, needing each other to really be as healthy as God intends for us to be. That is the fellowship of the church, the koinonia. And that brings us to the last quality the early church was devoted to, continuing steadfast in the breaking of bread. There are few things in life more irresistible to me than uh, baking bread. It's the breaking of bread, but baking bread. Like I just think about that, whether it be homemade bread or pizza crust and pizza sticks Jennifer makes or uh, cake, uh, cookies, which are kind of like bread, right? Um, Whatever it is, and in our house, you know that as soon as it comes out, the, out of the oven, it has to be consumed. It's not optional. It has to be consumed, preferably with butter, which you slather over the bread. Or if you make the cookies, you're using real butter, not that fake stuff. So it's crispy and crunchy, right? Um, so you would think when you're reading Breaking of Bread, well, that's what they're talking about. You're like, oh, I'm in. Devoted to eating bread? Yes. Let's do more of that. Let's start that today. Uh, but is that what that actually is referring to? Uh, it seems, because a few verses later in verse 46, he talks about they day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So just the context, it seems to be the case. But there's a lot of scholars who have this opinion, and I'm not just saying, well, they're the experts and we're dummies and we just have to believe them. Go, go research it yourself. There's a lot of people who study this for a long time who know the original language to believe that this is a reference not to just eating food, but a reference to the Lord's Supper. You have the article the in verse 42, the breaking of bread, which is in the original Greek. It's not just added by the English translators, which is pointed to something more than just generic eating of food. We know that breaking of bread was a part of the original Passover meal that forms the basis of the Lord's Supper meal Jesus shared with his disciples the night of his arrest. 
They gathered for the traditional Jewish Passover, and if you've studied that, you can. You know that at particular times in that meal, Jesus did particular things that had great significance to Jewish people. And he, he was using that old meal that had been around since Exodus 12 to point them to these new realities of who he was. You see this recorded in Luke 22. When the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The meal and the significance of this meal became so important that the early church became devoted to continuing to share in this meal, not once a year, like when they celebrated Passover, but some evidence suggests it was as least as often as weekly when they gathered on the Lord's Day, Sunday, and worshiped together. And some even suggest it may have been every time they shared in a corporate meal together. They would come together and eat, these food, they eat this food in their homes, what eventually became called a love feast. And then after the meal was over, they would take bread and they would take wine and they would share in a remembrance celebration of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. The fruit of the vine as the shed blood of Christ, the broken bread as a broken body of Christ. Acts 27 gives us some evidence for this. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread, sharing in this remembrance meal of Christ. The most extensive teaching in the New Testament is by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we walked through this passage last year, we saw how the church of Corinth was abusing this meal. They would gather for these love feasts before the meal, but the rich people in the church would come and eat all the good food and leave all the scraps for the poor people. And then they would share in this communion meal, signifying the person and work of Christ, all he had done to make them one, and they would, in a rather flippant, unrepentant way, share in this meal as though they were one and they were not one. They were deeply, deeply divided. A blatant disregard for what that meal symbolized for them, this public lack of repentance, this open, unashamed embrace of sin instead of faith in Jesus uh, was so bad that Paul says God was judging them. Some of them were getting sick and some of them were dying. That's how severe it was in the Corinthian church, a, a form of church discipline that only God could bring about. And Paul gives them instructions on how to share in this meal with a repentant and sober mind and spirit in verse 27. And so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and this way let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Now the meaning of the meal is obvious, putting our minds and hearts to the essence of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus. Jesus giving his body to be crushed and broken and bruised, 
Jesus shedding his blood, this is the final sacrifice. The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist called him in John chapter 1, the Son of God coming to give his life as the final sacrifice to which all the, the sacrifices, thousands of animals that have been slaughtered throughout the Old Testament pointed to. You, didn't, you never see the, Old, uh, the New Testament church anywhere through the rest of the God, uh, New Testament sacrificing animals to pay for their sins. They understood Jesus was the final sacrifice. It is finished, Jesus said, which is why they could continue to worship as God's people after the temple had been destroyed in 69 AD and hasn't been rebuilt since. They were no longer dependent upon the priest to intercede between them and God because a great high priest had come. They were no longer dependent on animal sacrifices, which covered their their sins with the blood of the animal. They were dependent now on the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus made all of that mute and not necessary any longer. They understood the meaning of the meal. We understand the meaning of the meal. But the significance of the meal can be seen in how they devoted the early church, how devoted they were to sharing the meal continually. Again, at least weekly, maybe more often, which is why... We share in communion every single Lord's Day that we gather. And we have done it more than Sunday. Some of the missional communities, when they've gathered, have shared in communion when they gather for a family meal. It's significant not because it's bread and wine, not because it's even unleavened bread and wine instead of grape juice. Or it's not significant because we drink from a cup or dip the bread in the juice. Now, we do have plans, and we've had discussions, and some of you uh, have been a part of those discussions, to make the communion meal that we share every Sunday more in line with how we think they practiced it in the first century. So, Lord willing, eventually we'll have a wine option for those who feel the freedom to uh, consume wine. We'll have unleavened bread. Uh, We have that each week already. We even have plans to move from the method of dipping the bread in the juice, which is called intinction, to actually having a small cup, not one cup, don't worry, And there are reasons for that that we want to share and explain and help you understand and not just say, well, let's just do something different. There's meaning behind it. There's reasons behind it. But guys, even if we use wine, even if we use a cup or matzah bread or whatever, they're all still just symbols. In and of themselves, there's nothing in their essence that is significant. It's just bread. It's just wine. It's just juice. It's just a cup. Much like a wedding ring is just a ring. It's just a piece of metal wrapped around your finger. Or for those of you who lose your wedding ring, it's a piece of silicone molded to fit around your finger. The significance is what it represents. And we don't believe Jesus inhabits these elements. We do believe the fact that these elements represent Jesus is significant. And while we don't expect you to be struck dead if you share in this meal without every single sin confessed and repented of, because that's really not possible, we're far more simple than we realize, It is always dangerous for a Christian to share in a meal or even live one single day with known, unconfessed, and unrepentant sin. It's foolish to have sin in our life that we know is in our life and we don't care. Just kind of being flippant about it. Shrug our shoulders at it. Well, everybody has sin. My sin is not as bad as their sin. It's dangerous and foolish because of the Natural consequences we experience because of sin, because sin never leads to better life. Sin always leads to death and destruction in your life. But also because over time to live with unrepentant, unconfessed sin, to be flippant about sin, to say, well, I don't really, I'm not that bad of a sinner. First John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. 
But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not just because of the consequences, but it's because over time to live like this could and would, in fact, prove you've never been born again. You've never come alive in Christ. Because that's not the characteristics of a New Testament follower of Jesus. And in fact, it would be very costly for you to come to a place like this week after week and participate in this, this, this worship of Jesus and to know you're not one of his, but to have all these good works layered upon layered in your life to give you this false sense of security. So we would want you to be confronted with the reality of your sin, and that it's serious, and we should never be flippant about just one sin in our life that we haven't confessed and repented of. It took one sin to bring the curse of sin into creation in the garden, just one that made the death and sacrifice of the Son of God necessary. And so we should feel the same weight about our sins. So it's, it's not just dangerous to share in this meal while knowingly, willingly indulging in hiding sin. It's dangerous for you to live one single second playing around with sin. And if it's a sin that threatens the witness of the local church, threatens the unity of the church, it's even more important to deal with that sin. That's the significance of the death of Jesus. What did his death provide? What did his death accomplish? Baptism represents this initial coming alive in Jesus, this new birth, being buried and dead in your sins with Christ Jesus, being raised to walk in the newness of life. Communion is more about this continual commitment and renewal of your vows with Christ and with the body of Christ. So when we come to the table each week, we have this time of reflection and prayer that we, we provide after we sing a song together. And we come before the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and we, and we ask, is there any sin that you need to confess and repent of and trust in Jesus' life and death and resurrection to overcome? Jesus, is there any sin between me and someone else that I need to address? By sharing in this meal, I'm worshiping you, Jesus. I'm thanking you. I'm remembering the price you had to pay, and we're glad to pay for me to be forgiven and redeemed and made a part of this community of God's people. And I don't want to flippantly share in this meal and shrug my shoulders at my sins and think it doesn't matter. As though it didn't cost Jesus everything for my sins to be cleansed and forgiven. Yet I also don't want to be in a hole of despair so deep and dark that I can't even bring myself to get out of my chair and share in this meal. All I see are my sins, and I don't see Jesus' sufficient, loving, glad work to pay the price for my sins, which means I belong. These are the, the two instruments of the enemy against us. Richard Lovelace talks about in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal. The great tools of the enemy against us is presumption and despair. He either wants us to presume or assume we're, we're good. It doesn't matter how we live. You're good. Do what you want. God loves you no matter what. Just send it up. Or he'll swing us to despair where we can't even get out of the black hole of self-pity and pain that we're in to see ourselves as belonging and loved by King Jesus. It's a balance when we share in this meal. Yes, I am more sinful and evil than I ever dared believe. But I am more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than I ever dared imagine. It's a great price he had to pay to redeem us. But he willingly, lovingly paid it. 
Hebrews 4, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of who he is and what he has done, our great high priest, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. We belong Son and daughter of God, you belong because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And you will find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. And so each week, we pause to pray and reflect and share in this meal with a soberness and an examination. Now, the the nerd in me wants to uh, get out a stopwatch and time this time of reflection. You know, we... We, uh, we sing a song, we read a prayer, and then, okay, when you're ready, spend some time reflecting and praying through and remembering what Jesus has done for you. When you're ready, come and receive the elements and return to your seat, and then we'll share in this meal together. Those of you who's, who, who are with us, you know what I'm talking about. And, and I would say, the nerd in me would say, if I actually did that, it would be somewhere around 30 to 40 seconds with maybe a 5 or 10 second variance every single week. And so maybe that means... That when the first person comes, we're all like, yeah, okay, I'm ready. We all just process that at the same amount of time. We're all on the same page. We're sharing in that, the, the same introspection of the Spirit of God in an equal amount of time. Maybe that's true. But maybe we're just going through the motions. Maybe we're just kind of waiting. Okay, all right, now I can go. Maybe we're thinking about things later on in the day, and we're not really truly, deeply reflecting on our sins and what Jesus did to pay for our sins. Because we're all different and we're in different places spiritually, some weeks there should be some who run to the table immediately. Like even before our worship leader gets the words out of his mouth. Like I have processed everything. I did it during the sermon. I did it during the song. I did it during the prayer that was read and I am ready Because I know everything Jesus did for me, and I'm receiving this meal with joy, and I can't wait to eat this meal because of King Jesus and what he did. Let's do it. Come on. And maybe some would run immediately because they they see the greatness of their sin, and they're desperate to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he did. He gave himself so that we could be forgiven. So that could be the case for some. And maybe some should take longer because there's just more to process and think through. Because maybe you've been flippant with sin and you've indulged and hidden your sin from others. And you just barely got yourself here today, maybe only because someone picked you up or maybe someone really encouraged you to come or you're just doing it out of routine and ritual devotion. And maybe sin is big and maybe you don't even need to partake in this meal every week. You need more time to sit down with your brothers and sisters and be counseled in the gospel. Be reminded of who Jesus is. And guys, that's okay. We're not, we don't have a checklist going, okay? If you need that, then take that. Some might need to not share in this meal because there's needed reconciliation with a brother and sister in Christ. You're struggling to harbor bitterness and resentment towards someone. You're struggling to love someone and you're struggling to hate someone. Matthew 5, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. So maybe there needs to be reconciliation and therefore you need to wait until you have that conversation. Guys, I can't tell you exactly how you need to share in this table. Only the Spirit of God, only the Word of God can tell you. But participate out of faith and repentance and not out of ritual and routine. Don't just go through the motions in anything you do in any part of life. Don't just do what everyone else is doing. It is a meal we take together as one church, but make sure you're engaged as an individual. It's a meal only for believers, and so we invite those who have publicly professed their faith through baptism to share in the meal. If you haven't publicly professed your faith in baptism, if you haven't been publicly baptized since you came alive in Christ, we would say don't share in the meal. Wait. Talk to us. Let's arrange for you to be baptized. You can declare to the world, I am a follower of Jesus. I'm identifying with Jesus. This reality that's pictured in baptism has happened inside of me, and I want to tell everybody. And then share in the meal with joy as a weekly reminder of King Jesus. Ultimately, the significance of this meal is not tied to the elements we use or the method or frequency that we do it. There's no law on that. We have convictions, but it's not like our convictions are always right and other people's are wrong. The Bible doesn't spell out exactly how we should do it. We, we think this is the best way to do it. But the significance isn't tied to method or, or elements. It's, it's tied to the person and work of King Jesus. Jesus said, as often as you share in this meal, do it in remembrance of me. They were devoted to this meal because they were devoted to Jesus. And they were devoted to Jesus because of who he is and what he had done. And they were devoted to sharing in this meal because we are so prone to forget. It's really all about him. It's really all about him. It'll be an, another sermon, and we've done those sermons to walk through the centrality of Jesus to who we are and what we're doing. But just last year, we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. A few verses later, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, which they would have preferred because they loved that in their culture. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. And later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul recites the gospel message about Jesus in the opening verses and then spends the rest of the chapter making the case for the resurrection of Jesus, saying in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, this is pointless, absolutely pointless. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. We saw a few years ago when we walked through Colossians after Paul's 
section in chapter 1, this hymn about the preeminence of Christ. He says in verse 27, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me to proclaim him so that everyone would come to know him and become mature in him. It's all about Christ. On and on we could go. But if our church is ever so organized and programmed and planned that if an archaeologist dug up a box of bones in the Palestine that unequivocally the entire world, even Christians said, oh, these are indeed the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. He did not, in fact, rise from the dead, but it was dead and buried and decomposed just like every other human being. If that could be proven without a shadow of a doubt, and yet we continue as a church, my friends, we would not be a church. We would no longer be a church. We would just be a religious organization. God, help us to be so tied to and dependent on the life of Christ in us. We can do nothing without him, but we can do anything with him. Whatever he calls us to do, whoever he calls us to be, we can do it because we have the power of the universe inside of us in Christ. The power that rose Christ from the dead is inside of us. God, help our lives to be so united with Christ that he's on every breath we take. I'm breathing in your grace. I'm breathing out your praise. I'm breathing in your grace. I'm breathing out your praise. God, help our lives to be so united with Christ that he is more sustaining to us than even our food. My will is to do, my my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven, Jesus says. He's more important to us than food. God, help us to be so joyous in Christ that he's greater than any thrill we could experience in our lives. LSU could run the table, beat everybody by 50. And Jesus is more satisfying than that. Duke could win every national championship from here until Christ returns. And Jesus is more satisfying than that. The Cowboys could win every Super Bowl. And Jesus is more satisfying than that. Or whatever brings you a thrill, he's more satisfying than that. He's more joyous than us than any thrill we can experience. He's stronger than us than any power on earth. We're not afraid of anybody. What can man do to me? What law can the government pass that's going to change what we do as a church? What leader could be put in place that could threaten our lives or the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ that keeps the church from being the church? He's the greatest power on earth. He's more glorious to us than any award or recognition we could receive. You could go viral this week. The whole country could be talking about you this week because of some video you post of your kid. And Jesus is more glorious than the glory you think you're receiving by being a viral sensation. He is our treasure for which we would and actually do give away our entire lives to have and be captivated by. And we sell everything and give everything, and we do to enjoy him and make him known. Christian, is that your life? Are you captivated by Jesus, devoted to Jesus? Does he grab your heart, mind, and will? Does he drive everything that you do? To what degree could you continue living the Christian life and do spiritual disciplines without him? To what degree are you just being religious and going through the motions? Don't presume your salvation. Don't assume your salvation, but also don't go in the pit of despair. 
Jesus is alive, and he is here to renew your heart and your love for him. As Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Walk with him as you once walked with him again. In the meal today, be refreshed and reminded of King Jesus. His mercies are new every day. Non-Christian, if the Spirit and the Word of God has revealed to you today that you've never come alive in Christ, that you are simply religious or rebellious, that Christ does not captivate you, He is not your treasure, and see the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Turn from your sins. Embrace Jesus. Trust in him for everything in your life today and everything in your life after death. He conquered sin, Satan, death so that you could be alive in him. Trust in him today. We'd love to talk with you now while we sing. We'd love to talk with you after and explain to you what it means to be a Christian and see you baptized and identify with Christ and his people. But trust in Jesus if you don't have Jesus. He will save you. He will save you. As the worship team comes back up, I'm going to pray. We're going to, to do what we do each week. We're going to sing a song to Jesus, and someone's going to read a prayer, and then we're going to have a time of reflection. My prayer isn't for you to be consumed with what other people think about how you share in this meal, but for you to focus on Jesus. And you share in this meal out of faith and trust in him. Let's do that well today. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he did everything necessary for us to have life now and life forever. Because of Jesus, we can be reconciled back to our creator. We can be adopted into the family of God, never to be cast out again. We can be a dearly loved son and daughter of our Father in heaven. Because of Jesus, we can experience life as you have designed and created us to experience life. With your mind and your wisdom and your hope and your joy and your peace and your love and your people. I pray more and more that would characterize us who are Christians. And I pray it would characterize today those who come alive in Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.